Section 25 of The Glories of Ireland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jenny Adamson. The Glories of Ireland, edited by Joseph Dunn and P.J. Lennox. Section 25. The Irish in Australasia by Brother Leo F.S.C. M.A. Should one be called upon to give in brief the history of the Irish in the land of the Southern Cross, he could do nothing more to the purpose than to relate the story of the Holy House of Australia. The episode, indeed, is characteristic not merely of the Irish in Australia, but of the Irish in every land and clime where they have striven and conquered. On the 14th of November, 1817, there landed in Sydney an Irish Cistercian father, Jeremiah F. Flynn. He had heard in Rome of the spiritual destitution of the Irish Catholics in Australia, and he secured the permission of his superiors to minister to the needs of his compatriots in the Antipodes. Shortly after his arrival, he celebrated Mass in the house of an Irishman named William Davis, who had been transported for making pikes for the insurgents in the days of 98, and then, on the first opportunity that presented itself, he sought the authorization of the colonial governor to exercise the functions of his sacred ministry. Far from hospitable was the reception accorded him by Governor Macquarie. The priest was told, with the bluntness characteristic of British officialdom, that the presence of no popish missionary would be tolerated in the settlement, and that the profession of the Protestant form of belief was obligatory on every person in the penal colony. With the example of the priesthood hunted down like wolves before him, Father Flynn saw but one consistent course to pursue. His fellow Catholics, his fellow Irishmen, were in sore need of his help. That help they must receive, even though the civil powers refused their sanction. So, for several months, he went about as secretly as he could, hearing confessions, offering the holy sacrifice, and breaking the bread of good counsel. During this trying period, Davis was his host and defender and friend. Eventually the presence of the priest was detected. He was arrested and promptly sent back to England. Before the ship sailed, he tried repeatedly to return to the house of Davis, where the Blessed Sacrament was preserved in a cedar clothes-press. But the surveillance of his captors was strict and unsleeping. So in the dwelling of the convict Irishman, the sacred species remained. Before this unwanted repository, Davis kept a light ever burning day and night, and day and night crept the loyal Irishmen of the settlement to kneel in prayer before the impoverished shrine. The Holy House of Australia, as the Davis dwelling came to be known, remained the only Catholic church in the colony until 1821, when two Irish priests, Father John Joseph Terry of Cork and Father Philip Connolly of Kildare, were permitted to attend to the spiritual needs of the Irish Catholics. Their coming marked the beginning of religious toleration in Australia and the termination of the sufferings and sacrifices of the Irish colonists, several of whom had had to pay dearly for their religious convictions. Davis himself had been twice flogged and once imprisoned for refusing to attend Protestant service. Today, on the site of the Holy House of Australia, stands the Church of St. Patrick. Davis gave the land and the sum of £1,000 to the church, and his fellow exiles contributed according to their means. 
This episode in the history of the Irish in Australia pays a touchingly eloquent tribute to the spirit of loyalty to God and country, which has characterised the sons and daughters of St. Patrick everywhere whither their feet have strayed. It is the spirit which has made the Irish play so conspicuous a role in the civic and commercial history of Australasia. Originally known as New Holland, Australia became an English penal colony after the outbreak of the Revolutionary War in the United States of America. An Irish element came into the colony in the last decade of the 18th century when, during the Orange Reign of Terror, upwards of a thousand people from the west of Ireland were deported by the Ulster Magistrates and by Lord Carhampton, the notorious Satanides, who was charged with the pacification of Connaught. And during the first three decades of the 19th century, the stream of Irish transportation flowed on. As a result of the tithes agitation, the charter and reform movements, the combination laws and the corn laws, many more Irish men were forced across the sea. It was not until 1868 that the convict system was permanently abolished. It is difficult for us of a later day to realise the meaning of that word, transportation. Let us form some conception of what the Irish exile suffered from the graphic picture painted in colours, sombre but not untrue, by one who knew from first-hand experience the lot of the political prisoner. Writes Dr. Ullathorne in The Horrors of Transportation. Take any one of you, my dear readers, separate him from his wife, from his children, from all those whose conversation makes life dear to him. Cast him on the ends of the earth. Let him there fall among reprobates who are the last stain and disgrace of our common nature. Give him those obscene-mouthed monsters for his constant companions and consolers. Let the daily vision of their progress from infamy to infamy, until the demon that inspires them has exhausted invention and the powers of nature together, be his only example. House him at night in a bark hut on a mud floor, where he has less comfort than your cattle in their stalls. Awake him from the troubled dreams of his wretched wife and outcast children to feel how far he is from their help, and take him out at sunrise, work him under a burning sun and a heartless overseer, and the threat of the lash until the nightfall. Give him not a penny's wages but sorrow. Leave him no hope but the same dull, dreary round of endless drudgery for many years to come. Let him see no opening by which to escape, but through a long, narrow prospect of police courts, of jails, of triangles, of death cells, and of penal settlements. Let him all the while be clothed in a dress of shame that shows to every living soul his degradation. And if he dare to sell any part of that clothing, then flog him worse than any dog. And thus, whilst severed from all kindness and all love, whilst the stern, harsh voice of his taskmaster is grating in incessant jars within his ear, Take all rest out of his flesh, and plant the thorn. Take all feeling out of his heart, and leave the withered core. Take all peace out of his conscience, and leave the worm of remorse. And then let any one come and dare to tell me that the man is happy because he has bread and meat. Is it not here, if ever there was such a case, where the taste of bread is a taste of misery, and where to feed in prolonged life is to feed and lengthen our sorrow? And in pondering these things, do not those strong words of sacred scripture bring down their load of truth in heavy trouble to our thoughts, that their bread is loathsome to their eye, and their meat unto their soul? 
but the bright side of the story of the irish in australia and new zealand unfolds in the subsequent years the men who had been sent forth from erin with the brand of the convict upon them became the founders of a new commonwealth to them were joined the numerous voluntary settlers who attracted by the natural resources of the island continent and especially by the gold discoveries of the fifties migrated to queensland victoria and new south wales when in eighteen fifty eight william e gladstone sought to establish a new colony to be known as north australia he opened a fresh field for irish initiative as a result of his effort there stands today on a terrace overlooking port curtis the city of gladstone the terminal of the australian railway system it was here according to cardinal moran that in sixteen o six mass was first celebrated in australia when the spaniards sought shelter in the harbour of the holy cross the first government resident at gladstone was sir maurice charles o'connell a relative of the great liberator he was four times acting governor of queensland the list of irish pioneer settlers in australasia is a lengthy one the name of thomas poynton stands out prominently he was a new zealand pioneer who had married an irish girl in sydney the devotion of poynton and his wife to the faith of their fathers is evidenced by the fact that he several times made the long journey from his home to sydney to interest the church authorities in the wants of the new zealand irish catholics and that she twice made the same arduous trip to have her children baptised thomas mooney has the distinction of being the first irish pioneer in western australia and yet another irishman cassidy by name carried out a policy of benevolent assimilation by marrying the daughter of a maori chief among the pioneer ecclesiastics were father william kelly of melbourne and father john mackencrow a native of tipperary and a maynooth man who for thirty years and more was a prominent figure in the religious and civic life of new south wales father john brady another pioneer priest became bishop of perth irish names occupy a conspicuous and honoured place in the roster of the australian episcopate notable on the list are bishop francis murphy of adelaide who was born in county meath and archbishop daniel murphy of sydney a native of cork the man who delivered the eulogy on the occasion of Daniel O'Connell's funeral at Rome. But scant reference can here be made to the illustrious primate of Australia, Cardinal Moran, Archbishop of Sydney from 1884 to 1911, who was such a potent force in the land of his adoption, and whose masterly history of the Catholic Church in Australasia puts him in the forefront of ecclesiastical historians. On his death he was succeeded in the See of Sydney by another Irishman, Archbishop Michael Kelly of Waterford. Archbishop O'Reilly of Adelaide is a recognised authority on music and has written several pamphlets on that subject. A Galway man, Dr. T.J. Carr, a great educator, is now, 1914, Archbishop of Melbourne, and Clare man, Dr. J.P. Clune, holds sway in Perth. Irish men in Australia have figured largely in the iron and coal industries, in the irrigation projects, in the manufacturing activities, and in the working of the gold mines. But they have likewise distinguished themselves in other fields of endeavour. Prominent on the beadroll of Australian fame stand the names of Sir Charles Gavin Duffy, 1816-1903, to founder of the Nation newspaper in Dublin, member of the British House of Commons and afterwards Premier of Victoria and Speaker of the Legislative Assembly, 
and his sons, John Gavin Duffy and Frank Gavin Duffy, public-spirited citizens and authorities on legal matters. The Currens, father and son, active in the public life of Sydney, were afterwards members of the British Parliament. Distinguished in the records of the Australian judiciary are Judges Quinlan, Casey, Brennan and O'Dowd. The Reverend J. Milne Curran, FGS, is a geologist who has achieved more than local fame. Other Irishmen who have loomed large in Australasian affairs are Daniel Brophy, John Cuman, Augustus Leo Kenny, James Coughlin, Sir Patrick Buckley, Sir John O'Shaughnessy and Nicholas Fitzgerald. Louis C. Brennan, C.B., who was born in Ireland in 1852, emigrated to Australia when a boy and, while working in a civil engineer's office in Melbourne, conceived the idea of the Brennan torpedo, which he afterwards perfected and then, in 1897, sold the invention to the British Admiralty for £110,000. Another Brennan, Frank by name, is President of the Knights of Our Lady of the Southern Cross and has been a Labour member of the Federal Parliament since 1911. A third, Christopher John, is Assistant Lecturer in Modern Literature in the University of Sydney and a fourth, James, of the Diocese of Perth, was made a Knight of St Sylvester by Pius X in 1912. Young Australia and New Zealand may be as the world goes, but already both have much to their credit in the domains of music, art and literature. And here, as usual, the Irish have been to the fore. In the writing of poetry, history and fiction, the Celtic element has been especially distinguished. Not to speak of the writers mentioned elsewhere in this sketch, scores of Irish men and women have been identified with the development of an Australian literature, which, though delightfully redolent of the land whence it sprang, nevertheless possesses the universal note which makes it a truly human product. Many years ago, one of the most gifted of Irish-Australian singers, Eva of the Nation, voiced a tentative plaint. O barren land, O blank bright sky, methinks it were a noble duty to kindle in that vacant eye the light of spirit, beauty, to fill with airy shapes divine thy lonely plains and mountains, the orange grove, the bower of vine, the silvery lakes and fountains, to wake the voiceless silent air to soft melodious numbers, to raise thy lifeless form so fair from those deep spellbound slumbers. Oh, whose shall be the potent hand to give that touch informing, and make thee rise, O southern land, to life and poesy warming? Mrs. O'Doherty herself, who long lived in that Queensland which she thus apostrophised, helped in no uncertain way to answer her own question. So did John Farrell, the author of the truly remarkable Jubilee Ode of 1897 and of a collection of poems which include the well-known How He Died. And so, long before, had the non-Catholic Irishman, Edward O'Shaughnessy, who went to Australia as a convict but who laughed in lockstep and made music with his chains. James Francis Hogan, author and journalist, was born in Tipperary in 1855 and shortly afterward was brought by his parents to Melbourne where he received his education. On his return to Ireland he was elected to represent his native country in Parliament. He is an authority on Australian history and in his book on the Gladstone Colony has given us a fine specimen of modern historical method. With him must be mentioned Roderick Flanagan, whose history of New South Wales appeared in 1862. 
other irish names distinguished in australasian literature are those of the new zealand poet thomas bracken roderick quinn desmond byrne j b o'hara the eccentric convict writer george barrington waldron victor j daly bernard o'dowd edwin j brady the rev j j malone and the rev w kelly Finally, the Irish in Australia have done more than their share in the work of education and social service. Under Irish auspices, several of the Catholic teaching congregations, including the Christian Brothers and the Presentation Nuns, were introduced, and their work has borne goodly fruit. A mighty power for good is the Hibernian Australasian Benefit Society. The organisation, which was founded in 1871, has spread rapidly and has a large active membership. Truly the land of the Southern Cross is not the dimmest jewel in the coronet of Ireland's glories. References Hogan, The Irish in Australia, 1888 The Gladstone Colony, 1898 Menel, Dictionary of Australian Biography, 1892 Duffy, Life in Two Hemispheres, 1903 Kenny, The Catholic Church in Australia to the Year 1840 Moran, History of the Catholic Church in Australasia, 1898. Davitt, Life and Progress in Australasia, 1898. Bonwick, The First Twenty Years of Australia, 1883. Flanagan, History of New South Wales, 1862. Byrne, Australian Writers, 1896. Wilson, The Church in New Zealand, 1910. Hocken, A Bibliography of the Literature Relating to New Zealand, 1909. End of section 25. Recording by Jenny Adamson.